Welcome to the second hour of this morning. Here are today's headlines. Korea saw its first population last year as the registered population in 2020 declined 0.04% on year to 51.83 million. The number of deaths outnumbered the number of births, which dropped below 300,000 to a record low of 275,815. On the other hand, the number of single-person households increased 7% to a record high of 9 million. Another presidential petition has been filed online regarding an adopted child abuse case that led to the death of a 16-month-old girl named c h u n g i n The petition claimed that the public should have, been the, should have the right to punish the public officials, such as police officers, who poorly investigated three reports of abuse against the child. The first presidential petition has been addressed, where a vice health minister said the number of public officials handling the child abuse cases will be increased, and the public officials who failed to hold the step-parents responsible have been issued a caution or a warning. Finally, Bitcoin prices are soaring past the 38 million won mark for the first time, according to Korean cryptocurrency trading sites Bitthumb and Upbit. The virtual currency broke above $34,000 for the first time in global markets as well, on the back of institutional investors betting big on Bitcoin and expectations about the Fed leaving interest rates near zero for several more years. Some analysts project the cryptocurrency will continue to rise in value, while others have warned investors against its extreme volatility. And you can listen to these headlines once again on our YouTube channel by searching TBS EFM. Once there, you'll also get a script of the headlines and subtitles as well. Coming up next, a closer look into delivery workers' rights in Australia, as well as the labor market situation in the U.S. and U.K. Struggling to bring Korean gifts to your country? Just shop at G-Market Global. No need to go to Myeongdong or Dongdaemun anymore. Plus, with our application, your shopping can be much easier. Download G-Market Global application and experience smart international shopping right now. The demand for delivery services has been rapidly increasing all over the world, uh, whether it be for food deliveries or parcel deliveries. We're seeing delivery workers working overtime to make sure customers get their packages or food on time. Unfortunately, most of them are not guaranteed access to health care and other basic employment benefits because they are hired as individual contractors. This has brought attention to the very vulnerable working situations of these generally low-paid essential workers as they risk their health and safety without, in some cases, being able to even earn a minimum wage. We've talked quite a bit about this situation in South Korea and what's being done to combat the criticisms against a lot of these delivery and logistic companies and how they treat their workers. We're going to take a comparative look at the situation in other parts of the world, uh, namely in Australia. Very pleased to be joined by PhD candidate and research assistant at the University of Queensland's Queensland's Business School, Tyler Reardon, uh, to look into the discussion of how 
uh, Australia handles uh, the situation for delivery workers there. Hello. Hi, Henry. Thanks for having me, and uh, good morning to your listeners. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Mr. Reardon. Can you first tell us about the situation in Australia? I imagine the pandemic has wreaked havoc uh, there, just as it has in other parts of the world, including here in Korea. How has the pandemic, though, uh, affected the normal daily routine of people there, especially in terms of uh, the increase in uh, delivery services and uh, the plight of the workers in Australia? Great. Thanks for the question. Um, Look, I guess, first of all, relative to the West of to the rest of the world, we're quite lucky here in Australia. Mm. Um, our case is a, a bit more limited um, due to the the geographic location more than anything. Um, that being said, we have had some brief lockdowns here, um, particularly in Melbourne, which was the hardest hit. So they had uh, about three to four months of lockdowns. And during these periods, a lot of businesses were forced to close. Um, many... I guess white-collar workers who could chose to work from home um, and bars and restaurants were required to close to the public. Because of that, uh, many changed to delivery or takeout-only models. So as people were staying home more, social distancing and things like supermarkets uh, were closed or uh, not closed but uh, had restrictions, people started to order more uh, food by delivery. But... Um, as you mentioned, because of the nature of delivery workers contracting, they were kind of forced to work all the way through. Um, so they were out there day and night, no matter what, uh, the risks making sure that nobody went hungry. Um, and as uh, people were uh, forced out of other occupations, this meant that the market was uh, flooded with other people delivering for workers, which meant that there weren't necessarily economic advantages. We've often talked about the uh, the gig economy and how that has uh, brought about uh, some significant changes, but especially uh, some questions raised for workers' rights. Um, here in Korea, they, we have our own proprietary apps uh, for delivery like uh, Pemin or Yogio in, in, in the rest of the world. And I imagine in Australia, you have popular apps like Uber Eats. One thing that has certainly brought, been brought to attention is that a lot of these uh, workers really do not... Uh, uh, enjoy any rights at all being independent contractors th- th- it does feel like the pandemic at least if you look at it uh, in a glass half full kind of way at least has brought some global scrutiny and, and media attention to the fact that these workers are being treated unfairly and find themselves in a vulnerable situation and this is why uh, we're having this discussion so that could be at least considered a good thing that's right yeah so um Workers who work for rideshare or food delivery services um, are independent contractors. So this means that they're paid uh, per delivery and they have to supply their own equipment and safety gear. Um, as you've also mentioned there, they're not protected by workplace laws or other employee benefits. So I'll just apologise. There's um, some kookaburras going off in the background, very mm-hmm. Australian um, bird. So sorry for that noise interruption. Um, but as you've implied there, yeah, these issues were certainly around long before um, COVID-19. I guess the pandemic has brought to light, um, I guess, the way these people, and that's something really important to remember, these are people, uh, the way they're being treated and uh, the challenges they face and lack of support. I think as well the high visibility, the fact they're out there on the roads um, coming to our doorsteps a lot more, the uh, general public has, I guess, 
become a bit more aware of uh, the reality of the situation. And uh, this is not just some kind of ivory tower uh, academic discussion for you. Uh, from what we understand, you've actually been out there uh, working with delivery riders and you've been able to get a firsthand look at uh, what it's like to be out in the field, so to speak. What is everyday life like for delivery workers? And uh, can you talk about the difficulties or hardships or even risks they face uh, going out there every day? Yeah, that's right. So for my PhD research, I'm spending about a year in the field um, basically hanging out with and working alongside migrants who deliver food by bicycle. Um, so through this approach, the idea is to get an idea of what life is really like. Um, I've been in the field for a couple of months now, and I guess, first of all, every day is different. Um, and obviously the experiences vary according to the individual, the day of the week, uh, the weather conditions and things like that. Um, and yeah, as you've mentioned, the workers take on a range of health risks. So that can include increased exposure to uh, catching COVID, for example. Also being out and about on the roads, there's um, dangers around other traffic, getting hit by cars and things. Um, and there's also economic risks. So as there's no guarantee of an income and you never really know what type of order or how many orders you will get, mm. um, this this is another complication and waiting time is also unpaid. So if you're out there 12 hours a day, which some of them are, yeah. um, and that's the, the limit on the ups, you may not necessarily earn too much there. But all that being said, um, it's actually also a really enjoyable and fun job as well. So the people I'm spending time with have a very social life. Mm. Um, one of the guys I'm, I'm, following at the moment he seems to know someone on every corner and they love catching up between deliveries and i guess um uh chatting and gossiping and as you do in any other form of um uh labor right the, just to briefly talk about the situation here in Korea and why it's become such a, a big focus, there have been reported deaths among delivery workers in Korea uh, because of these tight deadlines that they've been forced to make. And uh, with these one-day uh, delivery services that are offered by various companies, uh, there's a big time crunch for these riders. The problem is uh, part of their job also involves sorting the parcels, and they're not actually being paid separately for that if they're on an hourly wage, which really exacerbates the situation for them. And through exhaustion and other uh, reasons, um, many have lost their lives. I understand about five delivery workers have also um, tragically lost their lives in Australia as well. And uh, there is an effort underway to get these accidents investigated. They're considered workplace deaths. Um, Can you tell us about that situation and what you feel could be a way to prevent these kind of uh, unnecessary deaths? Yeah, so thanks for that uh, context as well. Um, so, yeah, there's been, uh, I think the number may up, be up to six delivery workers who have lost um, their lives that we know of in recent months. Um, and the Transport Workers Union, for example, has been lobbying hard to improve ba basic safety measures, uh, minimum wage, things like that. But unfortunately, given our system of governance, each state has different um, laws And what that means is that each jurisdiction treats workers differently. Um, and there's also sometimes confusion about who's responsible, whether it's the state or the federal government. Um, there are starting to be some changes. So the Victorian government, um, which is the state where Melbourne is based, recently finished a Senate inquiry 
um, into the on-demand economy. The New South Wales government, which is the state where Sydney is located, has just set up a task force. In terms of preventing the deaths, um, it's not easy, I guess, due to some of the issues that have already been highlighted, given the nature of work within traffic. Um, But as a minimum, I think we need to be thinking about safety equipment, insurance, training providers, and also community education and safety campaigns for other road Mm. users. Um, improved cycling infrastructure, and so on. So some of the people I'm spending time with were talking, were actually talking about these deaths a few days ago, and they were very thankful that where we are in Queensland, they're legally able to cycle on the sidewalk. Um, unfortunately, that's not the case in other states, meaning they're forced out onto the roads um, for every delivery. So uh, bottom line, I guess, as a final point here, are you confident or uh, optimistic that there are going to be some changes underway in Australia that will improve uh, the working conditions for uh, these workers that you've been able to be more intimate with? Look, I hope so. But I think the question needs to move beyond just the short term Mm. issuing of uh, safety equipment. Right. I think we need to think more about, um, I guess, the role of essential workers in our lives, the way we treat migrant workers um, and you know that means providing ongoing training checkup um, you know well-being and welfare um, in terms of policy making we could look at I guess more support um, around affordable access to healthcare, insurance um, protection by employment tribunals and so on and then finally the workers are asking for more fairness around payments so if they provided guaranteed wages and fairer reimbursement, then that means they're less likely to take risks um, and potentially act in safer ways. So I Mm. think to sum it up, we've got to remember that these essential workers are people, as I said at the start of the day, they deserve to come home after day at work and they deserve um, fairness and dignity that each and every person hopes for in their own life. Yeah, I think everyone can agree with that. Mr. Reardon, we're going to leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us and offering your perspective. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. So we just uh, got the situation there uh, in Australia from Tyler Reardon from the uh, University of Queensland's Business School. Let's uh, continue this discussion and take a comparative look at the labor markets in both the U.S. and the U.K. We're very pleased to be joined by an economics Ph.D. candidate and Ph.D. scholar at Harvard University, Anna Stansbury, on the line. Hello. Hi, it's great to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the situation in the U.S., as uh, most people who follow the news knows, is, is quite bleak right now. Could you t- tell us firsthand how, how it's been in, um, in, in the U.S. Uh, and uh, how you think people have been adjusting their daily lives to this uh, now cliched so-called new normal? Yes, absolutely. Um, and as you say, it's the situation is not good, so I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm, I'm here in Los Angeles, which is one of the worst hit parts mm. of the U.S. right now with the pandemic. Um, we're into a serious second wave of the virus throughout the country, and we're at the stage where now one in a thousand Americans have died of coronavirus, which is just a shocking and numbing statistic. Um, and in terms of the economics Um, Many of the worst hit areas have reimposed relatively severe shutdowns of non-essential economic activity in an obviously understandable attempt to slow the spread of the virus. But this kind of dual trend of the pandemic progressing apace and the shutdowns have led to a great bifurcation of daily life, Mm. where essentially people who were already privileged 
have been mostly able to work from home to stay safe, have mostly got good health insurance coverage if they do get sick, have mostly been able to retain their income. Whereas um, people generally at the lower end of the income distribution have either lost jobs, about 10 million um, workers have lost their jobs Mm. since this time last year, or have been forced to continue to work in essential jobs in retail, logistics, manufacturing, agriculture, and of course, healthcare, um, going to work and risking exposing themselves to sickness, but often with insufficient protective equipment. So there's been this, this great split where some people's daily lives, and I'm lucky to be one of them, are restricted. We are having to stay at home. We're not right. meeting friends. We're not going out and doing things, but we're safe and healthy and our incomes are protected. And on the other hand, a very large portion of people are suffering this double-pronged attack of huge sickness running rampant through their communities and families and also loss of income, loss of job security. Uh, you've mentioned in an interview, uh, in your interview, the uh, coronavirus, how the world how the world of work may change forever. Uh, you highlight how the fact that mm-hmm. the pandemic has um, given, uh, and you kind of mentioned this already, the, the, the lack of influence of people in their workplaces, especially those in low-paid occupations, uh, the ones that we uh, kind of, um, I suppose, uh, give homage to as essential workers, but essentially it's basically mm-hmm. just lip service. Could you walk us through your assessment of the current mm-hmm. labor market situation in the U.S. and what led you to uh, study this field? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, the background to this issue of worker power and voice is, of course, a very high level of income inequality. So the U.S., one of the richest countries in the world, also is a country with one of the highest levels of income inequality of an industrialized society. And we've seen income inequality rising even as pay for typical workers has grown very slowly over recent decades. And one of the biggest factors in this increasing trend of inequality is, in my view, and in the view of a number of scholars, um, a big decline in essentially workers' power in the workplace. And so you can see that with the decline in unionization in the private sector. Only about 6% of U.S. private sector workers are unionized, down from one in three in the 1950s. And you also see this outside of formal, so unions give workers formal bargaining power, right, Mm -hmm. to bargain with their employer over wages and work conditions. But you also see this absence of any kind of informal voice or influence in many workplaces. So workers from from the essential workers working, you know, on low pay in logistics or distribution to very highly paid workers, like, for example, doctors, we've seen this great frustration where workers are realizing that they don't have the influence to determine the health and safety of their workplace. They don't have the influence to request certain protective equipment or to um, request certain practices are taken, social distancing or other safety practices with the virus. So there's this broader, there's a lack of worker power in terms of setting power over wages, and there's a broader lack of influence and voice over determining the conditions and the safety of people's workplaces. And where I'm from... I'm happy uh, to dig into any of those. Sorry, carry on. No, yeah, because you mentioned you being in Los Angeles. That's where I'm from as well. I I understand in the previous election, they had a ballot initiative that would have afforded more rights to the so-called gig economy workers um, through Mm -hmm. uh, some intense lobbying and a massive advertising campaign by companies like Uber and Lyft. That ballot initiative failed. Uh, That being said, uh, are there any measures in place Mm -hmm. right now to safeguard these workers against discrimination and potential safety risks? So the situation for gig economy workers is, is pretty tough right now, honestly. So the, um, 
And the ballot initiative is a really good a good example of this. The ballot initiative, as you say, would have would have given essentially would have brought gig workers to be considered more like employees. The the big advantage of gig work and the gig economy is flexibility. Right. It can be good for people who want to top up their incomes, but for people who depend on it for their full time job or a large share of their income, it's really problematic. Partly because it transfers income risk to the workers, not the firms. If I'm an Uber driver and there aren't enough demand for rides, I bear that loss of income. Uber doesn't cover that for me and pay me a wage. Mm. But the other point is that um, gig workers are considered to be independent contractors rather than employees. And in most labor markets, but particularly in the U.S., many, many of the aspects of things that we consider labor rights are tied into an employer-employee relationship. So that includes health insurance, occupational health and safety protections, paid sick days, workers' compensation if workers get sick or die on the job, the right to unionize. All of those are specific to a relationship where you're legally considered an employee. Um, And this Proposition 22 and more broadly the kind of many of the legislative battles going on around the country right now are about the extent to which gig workers should be considered employees. So... Generally speaking, this means that gig workers have not had any of those protections I listed that employees would have had. Some companies have voluntarily offered some paid sick days or some income supplements to workers, but Mm -hmm. overall it's been pretty weak. The one bright spot has been that the federal government in their relief package in the spring and then again now has um, created a new kind of unemployment insurance that gig workers have been able to draw on. So typically, if you're not an employee, of course, when you lose income, you don't count as unemployed. Gig workers are independent contractors. They're considered to be running their own businesses. And so they wouldn't necessarily have got unemployment insurance in the past. But during the pandemic, they've had this extended unemployment insurance um, given to gig workers as well. So it's provided at yeah. least some income floor. We were wrestling with these same questions here in South Korea as as well for these uh, gig workers and, and, and uh, delivery uh, personnel. The UK also struggling with this. Uh, they have an interesting uh, policy in place where riders are only hired in places where there is an increased demand for services that, that would sort of ensure that there would be uh, enough revenue or at least earnings could be somewhat guaranteed. But uh, some of them are not, uh, I guess, the anecdotal reports saying that they're not even earning minimum wage. Could you tell us about the situation in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. So in the UK, the situation for gig workers and independent contractors more broadly is somewhat better than in the US in that um, many of them are considered in a kind of intermediate employment status where they have some employment rights, uh, but not all of those that employees would have. So they still don't have the right to something like sick pay. Um, And there was a recent high court ruling, actually, um, just in November, requiring gig workers to be extended the same rights as employees on health and safety protections and PPE during the pandemic. So this is definitely an evolving topic about how gig workers are considered in this, in this context. Um, in the UK, there's an interesting dynamic, which is that gig work is really only a subset of a bigger shift in income risk from employers to workers. So you mentioned this idea of a guaranteed minimum income. And there's also been a big increase in other forms of self-employment, and in a, in a phenomenon that's been very prevalent, which is called zero-hours contracts, where workers are technically employed by an employer, but their, their hours of work and therefore their pay is not guaranteed. They might only be employed for one or two or even zero hours in a given week. And so there's this broader problem in the UK that a large share of workers and a growing share are not guaranteed any kind of given level of pay or income in a given week, month or year. Um, And policy proposals have been put forward to try to ensure that they actually can get some guaranteed minimum income or wage, but we're still in the process of working that through. 
Yeah, it certainly does highlight the the fact that uh, each country certainly has a unique situation in terms of, uh, first of all, their corporate environment, the mix of um, the the demographics and and how each uh, government in place has a different outlook on these various policies. Uh, It would be really uh, wonderful if we could have you back again and maybe explore those policies in more detail. But uh, we're out of time for now. But uh, Ms. Stansbury, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your perspective. Thank you very much for having me. That was Anna Stansbury, an economics PhD student and a scholar at Harvard University. We will be taking a short break, and when we come back in part four, we have Radio Salon. Stay tuned for that after another check of traffic and weather.